Hello, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Now, this is a place where we invite people who really are magicians with words. And we explore their creative process here. My name is Nihal Arthanaika. Sitting across the table from me is a best-selling author of 17 books and is the most widely read female author in Turkey. There's an interesting thing for a business card. Um, political scientist, academic. She's been a TED global speaker, not once, but twice, receiving standing ovations on both occasions and contributes, of course, to major newspapers around the world. Elif Shafak, hello. Thank you. It's so good to see you. Now, if you've heard the Penguin podcast before, you'll know that we do things differently. And that is we ask these amazing creative souls to bring in some objects that have important parts of their life contained within them. Elif's includes a statue of Don Quixote, a teapot and a pair of headphones. We'll get into that. But first, let's talk about this beautiful novel, 10 minutes, 38 seconds in this strange world. 10 minutes, 38 seconds. How long our brain can stay functioning for? Absolutely, yes. So I became very interested in these recent studies that show after the moment of death, after the heart stops beating, the mind, the brain continues to work for another few minutes. In some cases, that has gone up to 10 minutes, 38 seconds. And so as a writer, as a novelist, to me, that was incredibly interesting. And this book, the novel, is about an extraordinary woman, in my opinion, a prostitute called Leila, who lives in Istanbul. She has been brutally killed. Her body has been dumped in a garbage can. So at the very beginning of the novel, we realise she's dead. The heart has stopped beating, but her mind is still functioning. And as she keeps remembering, minute after minute, her past, we travel to her story and to the story of a country, always through the eyes of outcasts. Did the structure come very easily to you? It was a challenging structure because there's the body and then there's the mind and the third part is the soul. As the story kept evolving, it felt very natural to me. And I think there are two ways of writing novels. One of them is a bit more like engineering, in which the writer knows what's going to happen to each and every character. The second style is closer to my heart. You don't quite know where the characters are going to take you and you're a bit drunk, you know, you follow your instinct. Uh, of course, you do a lot of research, put a lot of thought into it and work, but at the end of the day, you follow your animal instinct and that is how I write. Were you in control of Layla or was Layla in control of you or did that change? That is such a good question, I think. From the very beginning, I respected her as an individual and tried to understand who is this woman who was born in a very different part of Turkey, in a, into a very traditional, conservative, patriarchal neighbourhood. And she's experienced so many journeys and found the resilience, was able to renew and recreate herself. So I think... As a writer, I was filled with curiosity and respect for this character. To me, that was vital. So she herself, by virtue of where you took her, would suggest to you where you felt it would be best to take her. 
That is true. And also maybe I should tell you, coming from a country like Turkey, the novel as an art form is quite young and it came to us from mostly Europe, continental Europe. And so from late Ottoman Empire onwards, we have this tradition in which novelists try to teach something to their readers. And I guess I've never felt close to that tradition. I think we're all on the same level, the writer, the reader and the characters. And together we're creating that story and and trying to find the meaning within the labyrinth of the story. I don't like it when writers try to situate themselves either above their readers or above their characters. I don't like that. Nor do you like it when writers try and provide answers. That's so true. And um, there's a nuance there because I also think if you happen to be a writer, a storyteller from a wounded democracy such as Turkey... I honestly think you don't have the luxury of being non-political. So you have to care about what's happening outside your window. I think a novelist's job is to ask questions, difficult questions about difficult issues, and then open up a space in which a diversity of voices can be heard, create that freedom, and then respect your reader's interpretation, because every reader is going to come up with their own solutions and answers. Does it feel like a burden ever to think of asking the right questions? Because ultimately asking the right question is encouraging you to think in a way differently to how you've thought before. I mean, you've mentioned how a homophobic reader will fall in love with a gay character in your book. Mm -hmm. These are very difficult things to do. It is difficult. Also in societies where you ask difficult questions If you are immediately labelled as betrayer or traitor, you know, people just attach labels, then that becomes even harder. I think being a Turkish novelist is a bit like being kissed on one cheek and being slapped on the other cheek simultaneously at the same time. Because on the one hand, obviously there's a lot of pressure on our shoulders as writers And you do know that because of a word, because of a tweet, because of a novel, because of a character in a novel, you can get into trouble so easily. And to me, it's very interesting that a book is not a personal item in a country like Turkey. And I'm hearing from uh, readers from Pakistan, India, that it's very similar in many other parts of the world. So in a way, if a reader likes a book, they share that book. You know, you give it to your best friend and your best friend sends it to her aunt and the aunt sends it to her, her son. I love that word of mouth and sharing. I Honestly, I believe if in countries where there isn't proper freedom of speech, if books still survive and they're, if they're still published, I think we owe it to a large extent to to our readers because they are the ones who keep this alive. Going back to the novel 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in This Strange World, how much of the friction between modernity and traditionalism came from your own observations of being the only child of a divorcee, going to live with your grandmother and seeing that, the difference between what is expected of a woman and what a woman yearns to be and what she can be? I think it left a big impact on me. So I was born in France, in Strasbourg, to Turkish parents. And my father was an academic, so that's the reason why he was in France. But shortly afterwards, their, their marriage collapsed. And my mother brought me to Ankara, the capital of Turkey. We ended up in a very conservative, very patriarchal neighborhood in the middle of Ankara, which was my grandmother's universe. 
because my mom had dropped out of university and she was so young, I remember people immediately trying to find her a suitable husband because a young divorcee is regarded as a threat. And it was my grandmother who intervened and she said, no, my daughter should go back to university. So that's exactly what happened. And meanwhile, my grandmother raised me until the age of 10. And she very much supported my mother's freedom. And that made a huge difference in our lives. So I'm a big believer in sisterhood, particularly the kind of sisterhood that flourishes between women who come from different backgrounds, you know, might have different worldviews. I'm longing for that kind of universal sisterhood. You are nomadic and your first object tells not of Strasbourg or of Ankara. It tells of Madrid and your childhood days there and a wooden statue. Why did you choose this as one of your objects of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza? So when you live a peripatetic life like this, you have to think more carefully about which objects you can take with you when you move from one place to the next. And I'm not someone who likes to collect. You know, I, I let go of objects and I honestly think we don't own objects. They have their own journeys as well. They have their own stories. But this particular statue, um, wooden, quite tattered, you know, broken, chipped, I have kept over the years and I've always liked it. It takes me back to a time when I attended a, an international school where I was the only Turkish child. I remember it vividly. This was a time when I would go, just walk into the classroom and the other kids would be making fun of me. They would be asking me questions about a military coup in Turkey. They would be asking me questions about human rights violations. So maybe at an early age, I had to think, what does it mean to have a national identity? Am I just myself, you know? just an individual, a human being, or do I represent something larger than myself? Does it have to be like that? Maybe I had to consider those questions from an early age onwards. I wonder, though, if belongings attach you to a place and judging by how you were brought up in different places, that you are of no place. I disagree with that. <laughs> are you of all places? I am of various places. Right. And I think it's possible to have multiple homes, multiple homelands, even portable homelands. I think it's possible to have multiple belongings. Sometimes for a writer, the storyland is your homeland. I like to think of it in more fluid terms. There's no question in my mind that I am an Istanbulite. I'm very attached to Istanbul. But just bring me together with a Greek writer. You know, my God, we have so much in common. I'm connected to the Aegean but also the Balkans. And there's so many elements in my soul from the Middle East that I love and I cherish. At the same time, I'm a European citizen by birth, by choice, the values that I share. I have become a Londoner over the years. I have become a British citizen. And despite what politicians say, I would like to think of myself as a world citizen and hopefully as a global soul. You know, why do we have to accept being reduced to a single box, a single identity, when all those identities, in my opinion, are imaginary at the end of the day. Where do you go for solace? Where do you go to calm your soul? I think stories, yeah. I, when, it, when I'm writing, I feel free. I feel multiple. And that balances me. In our daily lives, we're constantly putting one side in the front and there are many other voices inside us that are not given equal chance to express themselves. And for me, that is very important. I'm a big fan of Walt Whitman's 
poem when he says we contain multitudes. I think that's very true. As human beings, we do contain multitudes. Tea is important. <laughs> Turkish tea. Because a teapot and a Turkish tea glass is very much one of your objects. That's true. A tea glass, not a teacup or a mug, but yes. glass. It has to be small. Yes. <laughs> and a tea kettle. And how sweet must the tea be? N- not sweet. I don't have a sweet tooth. Ah, okay. um, so, and I don't take it with milk. That's a bit of a blasphemy, you know, in Turkey. Right, <laughs> if you, okay. If you mix right. tea yeah. with milk. Uh, but joking aside, I also love coffee. I think tea and coffee are my companions when I'm writing. What else do you need to write? What are the rituals you must go through? I need a lot of sound. I don't like silence and I can't concentrate in silence. Actually, I feel very uncomfortable when there's too much silence around. And I remember it vividly when I first moved to Boston, to Mount Holyoke. The head of women's studies there, she had said to me, oh, you're going to love this place. It's so quiet. You can even hear the sound your hair makes when you're walking, you know. And that to me was quite terrifying because I come from Istanbul and it's a very noisy city. Even at night, it's noisier than during the day. And there's a part of me that likes that. I would always open the windows. The street vendors would be yelling and people screaming at each other, the traffic. Maybe I like that, you know, the sounds of the city. And I also listen to very loud music. It's like a loop. So I can listen to the same song maybe 70 times, 80 times. And that helps me to focus. Because headphones is another object that you've brought in. And I think maybe people will be shocked that it would be louder, more aggressive music that you would listen to. Yes, I usually listen to um, um, industrial metal and, you know, very, yeah, aggressive music. People don't usually expect when they look at my writing or my my personality. But I love those Viking, pagan, gothic, metal bands that not many people listen. And they're so dark, you know, gloomy. Uh, There's a part of me that loves that. Yeah, I know some of that music. And it is challenging on the ear, I think maybe some people would describe it as. I think you can certainly say, this must freak people out. I mean, no one puts you in charge of the music at a dinner party, I'm thinking. No, they don't. (laughs) They keep me away from it. (laughs) They don't let me even touch. Where did you discover a love for death metal, (laughs) industrial death metal? Einzustender Neubarten or one of those kind of German industrial bands? Of course. Well, I mean, since my early youth, I've always loved that kind of music. And there are many bands that I've listened, you know, religiously for a long time. And then I also like to discover new bands, particularly smaller Scandinavian pagan Viking bands. I, I like those as well. My children, surely they think it's it's incredibly bizarre. And you know. This is completely flipping the script on a parent-child music relationship no. where your children disapprove of your music tastes because it's too loud, too noisy, <laughs> and it's pagan Viking Scandinavian That's death true. metal. That's true. You didn't mention any of this in the TED Talks, did you? (laughs) I couldn't dare. It would have been great if you'd walked out to some of this music. Absolutely. Next time. Maybe next time. For your third one, when I see your third TED Talk and you walk out to this, I go, I would have had a part in this. So you gave me the idea. I gave you the idea to do this. So, I mean, look, the juxtaposition is obvious, you know, because most people think that you do need calm environments, space, 
serenity and solemnity to be able to create. You're the complete opposite. Yeah, I don't think we need any of that, to be honest. Of course, you need you need time, you need freedom. You know, there shouldn't be a state watching over your shoulder and censorship. There shouldn't be censorship and there shouldn't be self-censorship. Those are the things that matter. It really doesn't matter what's on your table or if your window has a wonderful view of the ocean. Those things do not matter at all. It's just the freedom that matters. How do you generate that freedom? Because life in its mundanity can be oppressive. (laughs) True. And to be honest, I think particularly for women, because we care a lot too much about how we will be judged, what other people are going to say about us. If I write a scene that has sexuality in it, how will my mother react to that? You know, all these things are in our minds, even when we are older. And I think we should be very honest about the kind of self-censorship, you know, that we have internalized. Over the years, I've been to many schools, universities. I've given talks in various different places. I also had a children's book in Turkey out, which gave me the chance to talk to younger readers, like seven, eight, nine years old. It would always amaze me to see children that age, they're so confident. You know, they're full of ideas, creativity. And if you ask them, are there any people in this room who would like to become poets one day? Or are you poets? You know, are there any poets here? So many hands go up. And girls at that age are very confident, if not more confident than boys at that age. And then I would go to high schools. And these are young students. They have gone through puberty. They have been socialized and everything has changed. Now nobody wants to be a poet anymore or a writer. And equally important is the fact that girls don't want to talk at that age. They've become timid. They're aware of their bodies, how they care their bodies, what other people might say. If they, say, if they say anything inappropriate. So that fear, that anxiety just weighs us down. That's how we lose our confidence. And I think there's a part of me that wants to rebel against that. The fact that so many girls in the world just to read a book is a revolutionary act yeah. is an immense source of sadness and frustration and anger at the world. Yeah, yeah. You've been blessed with this incredible talent that you have, but also you've been blessed with the opportunity to be able to share it with the world. Correct. Which Mm -hmm. so, there are so few women that do have that. That is so true. So where do you think what you can do can help? Mm -hmm. That's such such a beautiful question. Of course, it is a struggle, you know. Every day there is a struggle, there's an effort. Again, I come from a country where... The novel is thought to be a more cerebral work, so we associate with the male gender and with a certain age because patriarchal societies wouldn't respect youth either. The reason why I'm sharing this with you is because when I was younger, it was much harder for me, you know. And maybe jokingly, sometimes I say it's not a coincidence that many women across the Middle East, we're trying to age as fast as we can. But joking aside, I think... You know, in such a society, a male novelist is regarded as a novelist primarily. Nobody talks about his gender. But if you happen to be a female novelist, you're primarily a woman. And I have read so many reviews looking down upon me, belittling. You know, you go through all of that. And especially on social media, the moment you say anything new or different or critical, 
You get all kinds of abuse, hate speech. So, you know, it is a struggle. But at the same time, of course, I am aware that I can say my words. And to me, it's very important to connect with people, connect with readers from completely different backgrounds. I don't think literature can be reduced to one single echo chamber or one single identity or tribe. It has to go beyond those tribes and build bridges. And I think in a world that is now shaped with walls, east and west, those bridges are becoming more and more important. So in a nutshell, I do believe this is a time when writers need to speak up. Your last object is a a photo of the cemetery of the companionless. Why this portrait? This is a very unusual place. When you go to Istanbul, you will see usually cemeteries are within the city, they're part of the daily life, saints, shrines, old tombstones. It's just, you know, inside the city, not isolated. But this cemetery is different. It's called the Cemetery of the Companionless. And there are no names there, no surnames, just numbers. And it's a place where people are people turn into numbers. And I became very interested in this place. I started doing research, collecting stories of actual people who have been buried there. And I found out that many people who have died of AIDS throughout the decades have been buried there. Lots of LGBT members have been buried there. Also abandoned babies are there. Some people have committed suicides because they weren't given a proper funeral. They were sent there, etc. So it's a very mixed place. And at the same time, today we always read about refugees whose boats or dinghies have capsized and they drown in the Aegean Sea or the Black Sea. Where are all those bodies taken? Hundreds and hundreds of them are taken to the cemetery of the Companionless. So in that place, next to Turkish citizens, you will find people from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, from Syria, from all over Africa. All these unlikely people who didn't even have a language in common They're buried together without names. And I think as a writer, I wanted to take at least one of those numbers and turn it into a name and turn the name into a story. Give that grave a story, a novel. That's that's one thing that inspired me a lot. And I've been looking at that picture um, when I was writing this novel. What has this novel left with you? 17 books, presumably each one leaves something of itself within you. I've always felt like I was a different person when I started writing and by the time you finish something has shifted in you. That's my experience. And this book, even though it deals with difficult subjects and dark subjects as well, in my opinion it's a life-affirming book. It's a funny book, it's a book that celebrates friendships It's a book that talks about blood families and water families. Not everyone in life has a wonderful blood family. And for those people, I think it's very important to remember you can have another family as you keep living, and that's your water family, which is composed of your friends. And that matters a lot. And particularly in countries where there's a lot of oppression uh, and no celebration of diversity, for outcasts and for people who feel like the other, For whatever reason, it is very important to remember that those water families keep us alive and keep us strong. You've talked actually about Turkey losing its diversity, haven't you? And the sadness that you feel at that. 
And yet, of course, that is a conversation that is occurring across Europe about the fears of multiculturalism and diversity. In fact, you've said many of the words that you love are now suddenly yeah, persona non grata. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, multiculturalism suddenly is persona non grata. The same thing is happening with diversity. There was a Pew Research um, study done in 2016 and unfortunately, a very large number of European citizens said because of diversity, their countries had become a less favorable place to live in. So that worries me a lot, you know, accusing the foreigner, accusing the other, accusing diversity. We have some very real problems that we need to address. So when I look at these populist movements, I think they are the wrong answer to some very real problems. And we need to talk about those real problems, whether it's economic inequalities or cultural gaps or anxieties about the future, about the communities we live in. All of those need to be openly discussed and we need to deal with these inequalities. But populism is not the answer. No, but it's a simplistic answer to a complicated question, isn't it? But this is precisely why it's a lie. The populist demagogues are telling us, you know what, everything is very simple and I'm going to make it simple for you. Here's the people versus the elite and I am the outsider. Well, that's not true. And I think we need to start using the word populist elite over and over because many of them are elite themselves. We should be critical of all kinds of elitism and inequality, but not forget that many of these populist demagogues are just as elitist as the people they're challenging. On the other hand, there's no such thing as a monolithic people. We're all composed of different views, different um, backgrounds. That's the beauty of democracy, pluralistic democracy. Uh, it is complex, but that is precisely why we need to find what it is that keeps us together rather than dividing each other into imaginary tribes. Before we go, I want to play an extract, uh, Elif, from the book. And this is at the very start of the novel, where Leila begins to, I guess, get to grips with the situation that she finds herself in. Let's have a listen to that now. Only a few hours ago, she was singing, smoking, swearing, thinking. Well, even now she was thinking. It was remarkable that her mind was working at full tilt, though who knew for how long... She wished she could go back and tell everyone that the dead did not die instantly, that they could, in fact, continue to reflect on things, including their own demise. People would be scared if they learned this, she reckoned. She certainly would have been when she was alive. But she felt it was important that they knew. It seemed to Layla that human beings exhibited a profound impatience with the milestones of their existence. For one thing, they assumed that you automatically became a wife or a husband the moment you said, I do. But the truth was, it took years to learn how to be married. Similarly, society expected maternal or paternal instincts to kick in as soon as one had a child. In fact, it could take quite a while to figure out how to be a parent, or a grandparent for that matter. Ditto with retirement and old age. How could you possibly change gears the moment you walked out of an office where you had spent half of your life and squandered most of your dreams? Not that easy. Layla had known retired teachers who woke up at seven, showered and dressed neatly, just to slump at the breakfast table, only then remembering they no longer had a job. They were still adjusting. Perhaps it was not that different when it came to death. People thought you changed into a corpse the instant you exhaled your last breath. 
but things were not clear-cut like that. That was 10 minutes, 38 seconds in this strange world, read by Alex Dunmore and written by my guest, Elif Shafak. Uh, just a reminder, if you haven't already, do subscribe to the Penguin Podcast uh, website such as Acast and Audio Boom, Spotify, or using the podcast app on your smartphone. Uh, we're also available on your Alexa-enabled device. And if you like what you hear, please do share, rate and review the Penguin Podcast. Uh, we would, of course, love to know what you think. Elif, it seems quite odd once you've released a book for someone to ask you what's next because it's taken up so much of your time and passion and energy. How much of a break do you need to take? Or are you just a workaholic and there are constant ideas and you need to commit them as soon as possible? I need I need to take a break. And also, I think as novelists, we have... I sincerely think we have inflated egos, you know, because you create characters, you kill characters, you think you're a little god in that universe. So when the book is over, we have to get out of that universe and do other things in life, you know, learn baking and maybe go and get a music class or something. But do no, please don't, please don't make music <laughs> after I've discovered the music you listen to. Please, the last thing we want is okay. an early pagan Swedish death metal band. Okay, maybe not music. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> but just to get out of that universe. I have this pendulum. When I'm writing, I'm very withdrawn. It's a very lonely work. Walter Benjamin used to call it the loneliest form of art, writing a novel. And when that's over, I think the pendulum swings to the other end. And I like to give talks, go to book festivals, meet with readers. So it's a very different energy. Ultimately, how would you like a reader to be changed by the experience of reading 10 minutes, 38 seconds in this strange world, going back to the megalomania? You know, I have many readers in Turkey who are quite xenophobic um, or very homophobic because these are the only narratives they have heard in their families, in their societies. And it really matters to me when they say, and when they come on my book signing days and they say, you know, I love this character and maybe the character they're talking about is Jewish or Armenian or Greek or Kurdish or gay or bisexual or transsexual. So people they wouldn't perhaps normally connect with in their daily lives or even people they have been biased against in the public space. If I can make a slight difference in terms of diminishing their biases and perhaps helping people to connect across those imaginary boundaries, that would make me happy. Elif, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Karl-Uwe Knausgaard, the international sensation, now turns his keen eye to art in his brand new audiobook, So Much Longing in So Little Space. Sometimes it is impossible to say why and how a work of art achieves its effect. I can stand in front of a painting and become filled with emotions and thoughts, evidently transmitted by the painting, and yet it is impossible to trace those emotions and thoughts back to it and say, for example, that the sorrow came from the colours, or that the longing came from the brushstrokes, or that the sudden insight that life will end lay in the motif. Focused on the art of Edvard Munch, this is an edifying and insightful look at some of the 19th century's greatest paintings. The audiobook of So Much Longing in So Little Space is available to download now.